almost anyone can get really, really fit if they work out. And, and th this is the case with concentration. It's like we live in a world where almost everyone is cognitively obese. So it's like maybe shallow work helps keep you out of bankruptcy, where deep work is what helps the business triple in size. So the notion of saying, I don't have time for deep work, what you're really saying is, I don't have time to actually produce value. Hey folks, Mark Devine coming back at you with the Unbeatable Mind podcast. Super stoked that you could join me again today. So we must be doing something right. Uh, really appreciate your time. And uh, I've got an extremely interesting guest today, Kale Newport. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you all about Kale in a second. But before I do... You're going to be like, okay, you just said this uh, the last 10 podcasts, but I'm going to keep saying it until my staff says, okay, uh, don't say it anymore. But please go to iTunes and rate the podcast and start on the right-hand side because if you click there, then all five stars will click and you know you won't need to go any further. So go rate the podcast so other people can find it. And if, you don't, if you're not part of our email list, then go to unbeatablemind.com slash podcast and drop your email in so that we can keep you posted on all the cool things. Now... I heard of Cal Newport when a good friend of mine, Joe Stump, came along and said, hey, I just read this amazing book about uh, learning how to focus, and uh, it's called Deep Work. He goes, I think it's really important. And uh, that's something that we talk a lot about in Unbeatable Mind in our training program is how do, you, how do we develop focus and concentration so we can deep dive in and do the important things and be more successful? Obviously, there's a lot more involved in that. So it's something that our, um, our guest today, Cal, has written a whole book about, and he's, he's really passionate about it, obviously. So he is an author. That's just one of, that's his most recent book called Deep Work Rules for Focused Success in a Distracted World. And aren't we in a distracted world? He's also an author of How to Win in College and So Good They Can't Ignore You. So I'm really interested in learning about those, Cal. And he, but that's like in his extra time because his real world, his real job is He's a professor of computer science, a soon-to-be associate professor of computer science at Georgetown. He has an undergrad, undergrad from Dartmouth and a doctorate from MIT, and all-around smart guy. So, Kale, thank you very much for your time. I know you're, you're busy. Uh, you just got tenure. You probably got students lining up at your door right now. <laughs> That's right. I'm in hiding. You're in hiding, right? <laughs> you put the sign up on your door that says, I'm not here, and people are saying, but I can see you in there. <laughs> yeah. Good for you. So, wow. Uh, let's let's not start with deep work because I mean I want to spend the chunk of our time going into that. But let's start with just who is Kel? Uh, you know, where are you from, and and what were some of your uh, early influences in your life that kind of led you toward this kind of double life of <laughs> being a computer scientist and an author? You know. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I, I think it goes back with me to actually high school, which is sort of the, this is the Rosetta Stone to the whole sort of dual life I have. In high school, this was the late 1990s, was the first dot-com boom. Mm -hmm. remember. And as a computer geek, I started a tech company okay. during my teenage years. So I had been exposed in my teenage years to business books, advice books, uh, help books, business advice books, things that were pretty no-nonsense. You want to be more successful at marketing, do this. You want to be more successful at whatever, time management, do this. Then I get to college, and I'm taking on student loans, and I say, okay, I want to do this well. I want to get my money's worth. I go to buy some books about how do I nail this, right? how do I do really well at college, 
And the stuff on the shelf in the late 1990s, early 2000s when I was at, at school was not what I was looking for. Uh, it all had a, a sort of playful flavor. I, I later found out from editors that the publishing industry was worried that uh, students would think your book was not cool if it was too serious. And I thought this was nonsense. I mean, you know, college kids have a lot of self-regard. They think they're older than they are. They're reading Proust. I'm sure they can handle David Allen. Right. So I had this idea that why don't I just write college advice book the same way you'd write a business book. Hmm. And in fact, I even took a very specific business book, How to Become CEO, which had this, these short, uh, contrarian, declarative chapters. Do this, do that, do this. And I said, I'm just going to write a book about how to succeed in college in that exact business book format. I'm going to copy it exactly. I even got my agent I got was the agent of the author of that original. <laughs> no kidding. And so I went out and I interviewed a bunch of Rhodes Scholars and Marshall Scholars and, and valedictorians. I, I pulled out their advice. I wrote it in this format. And it was a success. It turned out there was a hunger for people to not talk down the college students right. and just say, if you're serious about really getting your money's worth, getting good grades, really doing well, here's the no-nonsense stuff you have to do. And that's what sort of kicked off this double life I've led ever since as someone in an academic path and someone who writes at the same time. Mm -hmm. So you've been writing ever since you got into your professional career as a computer science uh, practitioner yeah, and I professor. I think I signed with my my first literary agent in when I was twenty years old. Nope. So yeah, I've been I've been I've been at it longer than I guess I've been a professional computer scientist. You know, with how to win at college, was there a pull or a tug to kind of build a business around that that could have steered you in a whole different direction? Yeah, it was because I wrote another one soon after called How to Become a Straight A Student, which okay. uh, was even more successful. And this was one of the decisions I was facing as I was graduating college, graduate school, the tech industry, you know, I had a job off from Microsoft or try to build a business out of the, the student books. I think what helped make up my mind is the reality that students don't like to spend money on things. So, <laughs> so I think that helped at the end. Students yeah. are, the one thing they don't have is a lot of money. So I, I realized that it was, I, uh, I liked writing books for them. It was a great market. I liked the opportunity to be out there and talk and, and meet these people, but you probably weren't going to build a massive business on top of their right. desire to do better. So what were some of your findings? Uh, what, what were some of your recommendations for, you know, how to win a college and become a straight A student? Just for some of our student listeners here. Yeah, I mean, here's the, here's the core thing about, about college academics is that most college students are terrible at study. Mm -hmm. they're, they're terrible at the job of being a student because the, the culture and the social pressures are that you're not really supposed to think much about the mechanics of how you actually be a student. It's, mm -hmm. uh, well, you know, just kind of work hard and, and spend more hours if you want better grades. And some people are brilliant and some people aren't. And the reality is if you actually spend even a minimal amount of time being systematic about what are my habits, why are these my habits? Mm -hmm. You can evolve usually in about one semester's time a set of custom fit study strategies and habits that'll have a massive impact on GPA. I mean, the my experience, for example, was my freshman year in college. I was a fine student, not great, but fine, you know, like A's and B's. Mm -hmm. And I decided, well, I want to do better and I'm not willing to do all nighters. So I spent one semester doing systematic experimentation. Let me try taking notes this way. Let me try taking notes this way. Let me try writing papers this way. Let me try it this way. And, and really was Darwinian. What works, what doesn't. I wanted to have some justification. I got a 4-0 in every semester after that. Hmm. Okay. I ended up graduating. I was a, like a hundredth of a GPA point away from, you know, valedictorian of the, of the, the university. I didn't get smarter 
between my first year and my last three years of college, the only the only variable that changed between there is that I spent two months being a little bit serious about why am I studying this way? What might work better? So I think college is one of these last opportunities where there's a massive inefficiencies. Yeah, right. In the world of business, world of entrepreneurship, where there's money on the line, these inefficiencies have been largely found and taken advantage of. In college, there's massive inefficiencies. So even a little bit of systematic reflection on how you work and have massive positive benefits to your academic performance. Mm-hmm. How have the educational system and educators accepted this work? Uh, is it a threat to them or they they embrace it? Largely positive, right? Okay. I mean, because what, what happens is, is that what they get is students who are doing the work better mm-hmm. and who are more engaged in the work. You know, an interesting transition I had in my career as a writer was I wrote these two books for students in college and right after college. Mm-hmm. And then after that, after the second book came out, I started a blog. So this put me in much more direct contact with many more students than before. Mm-hmm. This was around 2007 when these technologies first came along. And as I got into more direct contact with students, I realized that there was this other issue out there, which was this culture of sort of high destructive stress that was really having an impact on high school and college students. It was really uh, having a very large mental health impact. So I, I spent actually quite a few years while a graduate student doing a lot of speaking and consulting on how to help students not just be successful, but do so in a way that was mentally sustainable. Mm -hmm. And that was, I think, something that got a much more positive response because it really is a problem. There's a mental health sort of crisis on college campuses right now because there's not a lot of mental fitness. I think there's not a lot of preparations for the mental challenges of being in the world for the first time and tackling some of ambitions and, and tackling some of these technical challenges. So that's actually where a lot of my effort ended up was helping people figure out how to tackle these issues and do fantastic, but do so in a way that was incredibly mentally stable. Mm-hmm. Is that where, through that work, is that what kind of inspired your, I think would probably be your next book, The So, so Good They Can't Ignore You? Yeah. Well, the relationship to um, this, this thought about developing resiliency and a focus on campuses or not? It was, it was an interesting connection. So, So Good They Can't Ignore You, I wrote while in a career transition. Hmm. So the, the premise of that book is I wanted to find out how do people end up loving what they do for a living. And I researched and wrote that as I was making the transition from graduate studies into professorship. Because that's a, potentially the first and last job interviews I was going to do in my life. I, I thought if there was any time I really needed to understand how people end up loving their work, I really should understand that now before making these relatively permanent seeming career decision. So that book was an excuse for me to go out and try to actually get at this question. Yeah. What is it that leads people to really love their work? And it did have some connection back to what I had been doing in college, because in particular, I had seen during my college advising that there's this phenomenon where students late in their careers, like their junior year of college, would suddenly start switching their majors. Mm-hmm very late in the game and it would cause trouble. Like they couldn't really fit in enough classes or to try to fit in enough classes for the new major, they would burn out. It was too much. And it turned out the reason they were doing this is that their classes got harder as they got to the upper level in their major. The upper level classes are harder. And they were saying, well, wait, I'm not loving this. Right? This is hard. And they had this conclusion, then this must not be my passion. Mm-hmm. 
because I'm not loving every minute of this. So I, I, I better, I better switch my major. Mm-hmm. And this got reflected into the world of career advice. And sort of what I, I quickly discovered when studying people who are passionate about their work is that too often the advice that trickles down to people is that you have a pre-existing passion. Mm-hmm. And all you need to do is identify it and match it to your work. Mm-hmm. And if you do that, you'll love your work from day one. Right. And if you don't successfully do that, you won't love your work and you'll know it was the wrong choice. And that that particular advice, follow your passion without the proper caveats, was leading a lot of people in my generation uh, into anxiety. So this was sort of the big conclusion I came to in researching that book is that passion for most people is something that's cultivated. Yeah. It's not the starting condition. That's fascinating, um, and I and I totally agree with you. And I, but it is also, you know, it's often, you're right. It's often conceived of as the other way around that passion must pre-exist, and and in many cases it does or it can. And I think it's possible that those are fortunate, you know, <laughs> fortunate yep. cases, right? So, what were some of the ways that you recommended or you found that people find passion in their work? Once they're in their work, <laughs> yeah. Regardless yeah. if they, you know, were passionate about it to begin with, or or they even thought they needed to be. Yeah. So, so the framework that I found that was common. So not one size fits all, but the the most common framework I saw people who are currently passionate about the work having had followed. Mm-hmm. I called career capital theory, and the idea was essentially you you take a skill that's interesting to you. And you become very good at it. And as you become good at something that's rare and valuable to the world, what you gain is what we can call career capital, which is really just a metaphor for the idea that because you're able to do something rare and valuable, you have more leverage over your career because you have something people need. Then what, what happens in this framework is that as you acquire that career capital, you can then invest it in the traits that make great careers great. So career capital gives you the ability to start shaping the career towards things that resonate away from things that don't. And it's, it's at some point in this process that really your sort of passion and, and deep meaning you find your work in life really starts to deepen and blossom. Mm-hmm. So I, I typically tell people you don't follow your passion so much as you let passion follow you in a quest to become you know, so good you can't be ignored. You're yeah. quested to, yeah. to master rare and valuable skills and then take that capital out for a spin to actually start investing your career. It's a much longer but I think ultimately more fulfilling craftsmanship style model. No, I, I actually love that. And, you know, it, I think that it's not so much what we do, again, it's how we do it and the purpose that we bring to it, right? And this is a common uh, question I get from a lot of folks who train with me is like, hey, you talk a lot about, you know, clarifying your purpose and then aligning that with passion, right? And so if you take that uh, in a sterile sense, it could be like, hey, these things, I've got to know all this before I kind of head out the door or on the mission, right? And the reality is um, often we're, we're out the door on the mission, but we can't figure out why. <laughs> and if you can't figure out why you're doing something or, or why something's happening or you know exactly what the heck the next step is, then you're going to be confused and you're going to end up having a lot of anxiety around it. And this stress is going to start really, you know, eroding your confidence and then pretty soon you're going to wake up and say i'm miserable at this right i don't like this you know i don't want to do this yeah, yeah. It's, it's all because you didn't ask the right question and, and, and you didn't have meaning right so you understood what direction you were heading every day and why and how it was going to impact the world and your you know your mission was uh, important right so ultimately it seems to be the the quality of the questions that we ask and how we architect our mission our vision and mission in our minds and then we can apply that to pretty much any career, right? Any career path can be made very meaningful, right? Yeah. If you ask the right questions. 
I love yeah. that. So that sounds like it. And so when did you write that book? So good. They can't ignore you. That sounds like really good and practical uh, work. Is that fairly recent or fairly recent? That came out in 2012, 2012. Okay. I'm going to get that. I've got a copy of deep work, but this one sounds really good too. I, th- I think that would be fun to, um, to do a follow up on. So, but what I wanted to talk, you know, I really, I'm, I'm like chomping at the bit to get into deep work because this is what I uh, kind of prepared to talk about. And, and you just put this book out recently and I think it's going to, I think it's an important book because, uh, and your subtitle says it best. And so I'm going to read that again. Deep work rules for focus, success in a distracted world. Right. And so that last part is critical. Uh, You know, I don't need to tell anyone or to harp on how distracted we all are right through social media and Mm -hmm. through just email and, and you know, disruptions and really just the massive amount of opportunity and clutter in our lives. Right. And more and more, you know, all these tools have allowed us to do more, but not necessarily do more of the right things. Yeah. And so, so let's talk about how you came about, thinking that this was a really critical idea that needed to get out in the world. And, and, and I, I imagine, I'm, and I'm going to shut up and let you talk, but I imagine you were dealing with, you know, every time you wrote one of these books while you're getting your doctorate or while you're, you know, working as a computer scientist, you had to go and do deep work, right? You, there was a time where you literally had to shut out the world and just dive in and get it done. And so you were practicing deep work, I imagine. And so a lot of this was probably self-exploration. And then you said, who else is doing this, right? Is that how this book came about? Yes, in the sense that I think I trained in one of the few places left where deep work, which I define more formally to be when you focus without distraction for a long period of time on a cognitively demanding task. So it's where you're you're giving something your full attention with really no distractions, zero distraction. You know, I came up training in one of the last places where this skill is still explicitly talked about and prioritized, where people still say – Essentially, how good are you at this? And the better you are at it, the more you're respected. So when I was doing my training in the theory group at MIT, Mm. deep work was everything. I mean, who did you respect? You respected the guy who could stare at the whiteboard for seven hours. Mm. And and which which would happen? I I literally, I mean, that a crazy place, a crazy place. And it was, uh, I was glad to be able to at least pass through. But the faculties are just brilliant people. But there literally was a MacArthur Genius Grant winner who had gotten tenure at MIT at the age of 20. And he would sit there and he'd have a team of people. People would come to, you know, from all around the visit. They'd, they'd stand behind him and he would be staring at a whiteboard and there'd be some, some diagram on it. And you'd go to lunch and come back and staring at the same whiteboard. <laughs> this guy publishes something like 30 papers a year. No you know, he, not on social media. You can't really reach him on email. <laughs> he's, not, he's not accessible. He doesn't care. But he's, this is, you know, this is what he does. So I always knew about this skill and it, it's been certainly at the key of my professional life. I mean, I, I ruthlessly prioritize it. I, I have no social media accounts. I don't web surf for entertainment. You know, I read a lot. I, I read the physical paper in the morning and listen to the radio. I'm like a 1930s farmer when it comes to my, 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 uh, my information consumption. But on the other hand, you know, I, I don't work in the evening. I'm, I'm home with my family. I can get tenure early and publish at a fast rate and publish books on the side. And I can do this all in a nine to five work day. Mm-hmm. And, and all of that underscores how powerful this particular skill is. And so this is really what I, the, the, the message I want to spread. I think when we talk about distractions in our culture, it's a complicated conversation mm-hmm. because we're uncomfortable about how distracted we are. 
but it's not as if the the individual things distracting us are clearly bad. No, and there's in fact, some val- they're, they're pleasurable, right? They're pleasurable, life. and there's value and this right. and that. So it's a very ambiguous, muddled conversation. And essentially, I wanted to, to flip it and say, I'm, I'm not so interested in talking about what's bad about distraction. I'm interested in reminding us of what's so good about its opposite. And I, I think our culture has has forgotten this notion that the ability to focus very intensely, which is as much of a trained skill as being able to do 35 pull-ups, right? I mean, it's something that, or play the guitar, that you really have to train it. You're not just going to be able to, to white knuckle it and do it the first time, but it's a skill that if you cultivate, it's almost like a superpower. I mean, this is why I can accomplish so much without you know, working at night. So that, it was a... a how, how, how much is nature versus nurture? Though? I mean, I agree pretty much anything is trainable, but I mean, the guy uh, at MIT who was standing at the whiteboard, I mean, did he specifically train his concentration? But he was yes. 20 when he got his doctorate. Like, where did he learn it? I, it's more like a natural skill, it seems like, for him. Yeah, he trained it. His dad took him around like Mozart. Really? Like at a, at a young age, they toured the, the they would tour around to college campuses like nomads, huh. uh, to, to to sit and work with different. He'd show up, and it was a very un, unorthodox you know childhood. Wow. They would show up and say, "I'm here with my son. He's a bright guy. Can you give him a problem? <laughs> we'll sit on your hair. They work on it, and they that's what. So his oh, wow. his life, if you actually looked at it, would is prodigious amount of. Focus concentration training. I mean, so there is a nature nurture piece, and people who who think at the very highest level. So if you're, you know, uh, on the faculty and the theory group at MIT, it's like being an Olympic athlete in athletics. Genes matter, right? right? I mean, they get to very elite level, but at the same time, almost anyone can get really, really fit mm-hmm. if they work out. And and this is the this is the case with concentration. It's like we live in a world where almost everyone is cognitively obese, mm-hmm. and so we're not t- talking about. <laughs> We're not talking about becoming, you know, a cognitive Michael Phelps, right? I mean, we're we're talking about just being like pretty shape the guys at CrossFit or something like that. I mean, as they say, the one-eyed man is a king in a in a world of blind people. The person, if you have like pretty good deep workability, relatively speaking, to your colleagues at Firm X, it's going to be like a superpower. It's it's incredibly, incredibly trainable. Okay. and, and I don't think we have to scratch the elite levels of it, the sort of Newton levels, the Einstein levels, which really is a, a, just a gift. Right. So we're not you talking know, about becoming someone who can go to MIT and stand next to, you know, that professor and solve the same problem. We're just talking about being able to drop in and do what we're meant to do yes. more powerfully and get more done, be more productive. Lock in, lock in for three hours right. and reach intensity. You know, most people just don't have an experience of what true deep work feels like, but it can be it's, it's, it can be a rush. And it's incredibly productive. I mean, it's it's a, a multiplier right. of productivity. It's like two, three x multiplier in terms of how much yeah. you get done for unit time. Hey, folks! I want to take a moment to let you know about a product I've been using over the past month or so. I don't do this very often, but there's a few products that I think that you need to know about, and this is one of them. It's called the Clean Energy Patch. It's basically a cleaner way to get energy without using energy drinks like Rockstar or, you know, Red Bull, or those, those shots that come in the little plastic bottles. Those things just rot your gut. The clean energy patch, however, you just slap it on your arm and it slowly energizes you or keeps you energized throughout the day. Originally designed for athletes and military members to boost performance naturally without those side effects like jitters and dehydration, which are going to degrade your performance. And let me tell you, what it does what it says. I was so impressed with it that I asked if they'd be willing to give a discount to you, listeners of this podcast, so you can try it too. So Clean Energy Patch is offering a 20% discount 
to all Unbeatable Mind listeners on your first order. Use the code UNBEATABLE2016 at www.cleanenergypatch.com to take advantage of the offer. And check out the show notes below for more information. You know, and back to your, your other, our other conversation about purpose, you know, I find that deep work naturally comes when we're really excited and driving towards something. We've got a goal, like a very specific goal. Right now, I'm kind of, this is why this is so interesting to me, is like, I'm sucked into building two businesses simultaneously and with, with business structures, it's kind of like, you know, I'm teaching a class and, and doing research at the same time. And there's a lot of, there is a lot of distraction, but it's not social media. It's not stuff that is naturally pulling me away that most people deal with. It's like very specific meetings and training events. And, mm-hmm. and so it's pulled me away from my creative work and I've got like four books, you know, that I've scoped out mentally and got massive notes on, but I don't have the time or the creative space to drop in. And the last time I did that, where I was more free to drop in, I wrote two books in nine months and got them out the door. And it was yeah. the most ex- one of the most rewarding periods of my life to be able to be that productive. Yeah. Anyway, so I guess I'm kind of supporting <laughs> supporting your whole notion of how valuable this is. And, to, and But maybe what I'm missing is that I can structure that time. And uh, even with while building two businesses, I can do the deep work. And so I guess there's, you know, I want to get into like, how do, how do I personally do this? And how do people learn from this? So that without having to walk away from or, or like take a sabbatical, how do we do this in our daily lives, you know, and continue to perform our other functions? Right. Well, there's two halves to the answer to that question, right? We have the half that is, how do you become better at deep work? Right. And then there's the half of, how do you make this a regular and important part of a diverse professional Career. set of obligations? Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's start with um, the second half. Okay. Cause everyone here is listening, has a busy professional life yep. and what they're going to be, you know, the, the first thought that gut, you know, the knee jerk reaction is I, I don't have time for one more thing. And yep. uh, I, I've always thought about writing a book, but uh, I don't even know where to begin. Yeah. And so how do we structure and begin to um, begin to work with? I know you, you have four rules. I, maybe those are a good framework to work with. Yeah, those, those could be helpful. I, so first of all, there's an important mindset shift to have in, in trying to make this transition is, is to understand that deep work is what produces things that's hard to replicate and valuable. It's what takes your skills and actually has you apply them like a craftsman at the sort of highest level you're able to. Non-deep work or what I call shallow work is almost by definition easily replicatable. Mm -hmm. It's like emails and meetings and passing memos back and forth. And therefore, it does not produce much value. So shallow work is necessary to keep the lights on, but it's not what's going to get you ahead. It's not what's going to get you promoted. It's not what's going to grow your business. It's like maybe shallow work helps keep you out of bankruptcy where deep work is what helps the, the business triple in size. So the notion of saying, I don't have time for deep work, what you're really saying is I don't want to spend, I don't have time to actually produce value or do things to produce value. I just want to do things that are probably relatively easily replicatable by any sort of reasonably bright 21 year old right out of college. You know, any reasonably bright 21 year old can bounce emails back and forth and, and set up these type of things. Uh, so it really is to, to think about deep work is at the, the core thing that produces value. 
And therefore, by prioritizing it and keep making it a regular part of your working life, you are ensuring that you're producing value, that you're going to keep advancing, you're going to get better, that you're going to get promoted, that the business is going to grow. So it's almost you can't afford, you can't afford not to do it. Right. Now, in terms of how you get it in, what, what's, what's crucial is there has to be scheduling routines and rituals surrounding the work. Mm-hmm. Deep work is cognitively very expensive. Uh, it's something that your mind is going to naturally resist in the moment. And so if your idea is I want to wait till I get to a time where it seems like I'm in the mood to do deep work and I have a lot of free time and maybe right now I'll concentrate really hard, you're essentially going to get none of it done. Right. Yeah. So it really does require routines and rituals. So a very specific scheduling routine, this is how I schedule deep work into my life has to be in place. And then rituals surrounding the actual deep work sessions. Mm-hmm. I do these five things before it starts. Here's where I do the deep work. Mm-hmm. Here's the rules while I'm doing it. Here's how I shut it down so that your mind can slip into that mindset without having to necessitate an exe- like an excessive investment of willpower, which is a, a finite. So you need right. scheduled routines and you need depth rituals surrounding the actual deep work periods if you're, if you're going to succeed on a regular basis. Right, right. And structure, you you know, in your book, you talk about Carl Jung's uh, Cottage in the Woods and Mark Twain, you know, locking himself in the kind of the outer, like the outhouse, basically. Yeah. And, um, and you know, the, another professor uh, of yours at Georgetown who, who basically, or maybe was not Georgetown, but who would uh, lock the door and basically say, or maybe this is you, lock the door and say, I'm out of the office. And then you would just do, do your work there. But so yeah. having, uh, structuring your space and time. Right. And closing off all communications and then just being clear about that. I'm reminded of Eisenhower's decision matrix, you know, where, where he's saying you got to, you know, you got to do the urgent and important, but you can't do it at the expense of the important but not urgent. And so deep yep. work is it's important and not urgent in a time sensitive standpoint, but it's urgent to advance our our career and our ourselves in life. Right. To grow ourselves. Yeah. There's really three main types of routines people use to schedule it and the type that fits best depends on just the realities of your job right so you know one type is what was called the bimodal philosophy it's what carl jung did this is what the the professor you're talking about adam grant this is what he does which is where you set aside the occasional multi-day period Mm -hmm. where you're completely off the grid and working deeply on just one thing so in Adam Grant's case, he might just be going through a week and he's just there and he's accessible. He's working with the students. And then from you know Friday to Tuesday, he's off the grid and just right. doing deep work. Carl Jung actually would leave Zurich and go to the house he built on the, the shore of Lake Zurich that had no electricity and no running water and had a meditation room. And he would just go there and just think and just work. And then he'd come back to Zurich and, you know, he's busy. He a clinical practice. He was really busy. So that's the bimodal. Was, this the, was it the same as what you call batching in your book? Yeah, so it's uh, extreme batching in the sense that it's, you know, the bimodal philosophy, you go multiple days. So so really, you clear out almost everything from your head and you really are fully enveloped in the depth and you can really produce quite a bit in a small amount of time. The second of the three philosophies is the rhythmic philosophy, which is I'm going to put aside the same time on the same days. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to think about it. It's, It's just I know that time is always dedicated to deep work. I don't need to make a decision. I don't need to expend willpower. It's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesdays, 7 to 11. It becomes a ritual. It's, it's my ritual, yeah. Uh, then the final philosophy is, is, I call it the journalistic philosophy. And, and you know, if, as I recommend, you have pretty fine-grained 
control over your time at multiple levels of granularity. So, you know, you, you know what's going on this month, you know what's going on this week, you know what's going on your given day. You can survey the week ahead of you or the next two weeks ahead of you and say, okay, looking at what's happening this week, I'm traveling for these two days. I got these meetings this day. When am I doing my deep work? Mm -hmm. Then you go in and you put it on your calendar and treat it like any other appointment or meeting. Something that once set is involuable. If someone else wants to do something at that time, you say, no, I have a thing. I, I can't, I'm not free till three. Yeah. Those are the three different philosophies for scheduling deep work that come up if you study people who do this. And it's really a mix and match to what are the realities of your, your job or personality. That's fascinating. And as we were talking through these, I realized that I've tried all three of these, in particular, the bimodal and the rhythmic, you know, so bimodal and setting up a writing retreat, you know, where I'm going to go somewhere and write for a week or so. Um, and then the rhythmic, um, I, I remember reading a really neat book about 15 years ago. It's called The Diamond Cutter. It was about a, it's a Buddhist philosophy. And they recommended that, you know, you take an entire day for just, per, you know, just pure creative time in the middle of the week. And they, you draw a circle around it and you don't do any work. You just, it's just pure creativity and pure time away. And they call that the circle day. <laughs> and so I've tried that as well. And the problem I have is just encroachment. And so maybe this is a discipline issue, but what are some of the strategies for, for ensuring that people, you know, other people and life just doesn't encroach and all of a sudden you find out that you've, you know, it's circle day or it's your, it's your writing retreat and, you know, you've been scheduled over and, you, yeah. have, you know, have you experienced that or do you have any strategies uh, or recommendations for how to handle the clutter from, or how to keep the clutter at bay? Yeah, it's a big issue. And it's, you know, it's why one of the, the rules in the book is called drain the shallows. Mm. And the idea is that some shallow work is necessary just to function professionally, but shallow work has to be viewed with some suspicion and with some care as more like a necessary evil. And that there has to be a pretty aggressive containment of the non-deep portions of your life, because if it's no holds barred, it will encroach. It'll encroach on almost anything. So there's Multiple things that are relevant here. One thing you can do is have what I call an attention charter mm-hmm. where you essentially work out in advance. You know, Here are my rules for who gets access to my time and attention and under what circumstances. So how you deal with, well, what if someone wants to have a coffee or what if someone emails me about this or what if I get you know, asked to do an interview for that or what if someone wants to do this meeting? And you just have these, these hard rules that you can push up against. And so you don't have to think about it because the issue is those type of external encroachments – Every single one of them is reasonable in isolation. Right. You take any single one of these, you know, maybe a, a reader emails you and it's like, hey, you know, Mark, can we have a coffee? I'm in the area. You look at it in isolation. You say, this is imminently reasonable. This seems like an interesting person. It could be, a, you know, mm-hmm. a good conversation. But you multiply that times X. Yeah. And suddenly you're, you look at the schedule and it's all pockmarks. This is scheduled, that schedule, this is scheduled. There's no way, there's no time in there and, and you're divided. So they actually work out in advance. Here are the situations in which, you know, I'll do a meeting with someone I don't know. Here are the situations in which I'll agree to do this. Here's the situations in which I'll agree to do a speaking, mm-hmm. uh, a speaking arrangement with travel, right? You have these things worked out. So, mm-hmm. so that's helpful. Yeah. Another thing that's helpful is to actually be much more aggressive in eliminating sources of shallow work right. from your life, right? I mean, so I, I, I don't use social media. That's an example of the calculus was not is there some value I could get from social media? Because of course the answer is yes. Mm-hmm. And just like it is for any tool, any tool has some value, but you don't go to the hardware store and buy every one of them, right? It's mm-hmm. which tools do I really want to use? So this notion of 
what produces the most value for me? And I'm willing to eliminate sources of, of shallow work and encroachment if they're not a sort of primary and substantial producer of value for me. Right. And so you just take out these channels. You know, a long time ago on my website, I got rid of a general use email address. Mm -hmm. Just said, I want to hear from you. Instead, I have very specific channels for more narrow type things that, that I'm interested in. I cut down my email by a factor of 10 mm -hmm. in the outside world. And it was fine because, yes, there are some things I'm missing out on and, and that were interesting before, but it was a sort of a triage. You know, I'm trying to get down to what are the things that produce the most value. So this notion of being having you know, hard limits on who gets access to your time and attention, being very careful about allowing into your workflow things that pull at your time and attention but are only offering some value or maybe just providing insurance against missing out, which is mm -hmm. not, not a good investment. It, it costs too much and mm -hmm. it costs too much in cognitive capital for a lot of these things to – you know, monitor a social media service at great expense to your time and attention because you might miss out on something. It's not a fair investment. Right. And so it's this notion of, okay, and then what's left? All right, what's my workflow for what's left? Right. And how can I be as efficient and minimally invasive on my time and attention as possible with the shallow work that's left? So it's, an, it's a battle that requires a lot of energy. No doubt. It almost seems like this is a first step, even though it was, it was your rule number four is to drain the shallows. To me, it seems like, you know, in order to even, I guess, um, to, to know what is distracting you, right? We need to take a look at that and begin yep. to be, have an honest assessment of, of how you spend your time and all the different distractions and the meetings and, and say, okay, what is necessary? What can I delegate? What can I just say no to? And then that becomes a practice in and of itself. It reminds me of Scott McGowan's book, Essentialism, which I recently read. I'm trying to get him on a podcast because this is such an important skill to, to do less better is the way he said yep. it. I love that. And what I've been working on was learn to say no in service to the bigger yes. So in your context, the bigger yes is the deep work, it's the project, it's the paper, it's the book. And in order to do that, to create the space both creatively, cognitively, and structurally, we need to say no to a ton of things that we're saying yes to. And I was smiling because I do get a ton of people who email me and say, hey, let's have coffee, or they just drop in. And all of a sudden, I'm in a conversation, and they're all very enjoyable and meaningful, and I feel like I'm serving a visitor from Europe or you know, wherever. But then you're right at the end of the day, I'm like going, Oh my God, you know? yeah. all, all that time that was spent with all this stuff and I didn't get anything done. So. And you can, you can, uh, you can control some of those things. So right. like, for example, in my own life, I was, I was worried at first about cutting off the general access email address because I did a lot of interaction with students mm -hmm. and it was, and it was meaningful to me. You know, I felt like I was, I liked being more in touch with students and what are their issues and how I could help, but it was a hundred emails a day. Right. But I didn't eliminate it for my life. I just eliminated that massive, uncontrolled tap mm. on my time and attention. And now what I do is on a semi-regular basis, there's various student groups in the area at my university, at nearby universities that I go to on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. And I'll, I'll talk to them and I attend, you know, I, I, a few times a year I speak at the graduate student organization here at Georgetown, for example. And it satisfies that same urge to it's meaningful to me for example to interact with students and be helpful but on my own terms right and on terms that allow me to still honor the the sort of the bigger priorities which for me professionally speaking is all proving powerful theorems and writing powerful writing like that's it I mean, that that's the whole thing and and so uh that allows me to, to still service that while still you know scratching that itch you know so you can you can find these things that you're finding value from and then turn around and say, if this is valuable to me, what's actually the best way for me to add that value to my life? And it might not be 
I'll just be very accessible on Twitter. It might be, I'm going to do once a quarter mm-hmm. an open meetup with my readers, or I'm going to have office hours once a month and like anyone can come in. And so that uh, it's just a different way of yeah. thinking. Once you start to explicitly value unfractured time and attention, it's a different way of thinking. Right. I love that. Do you use email by any chance? I mean, how has email affected you? I've, so I've, I've been, um, this is one of been my struggles too, is I wanted to, I've been thinking, like, how do I get away from email in my iPhone? And I haven't been able to do it yet. I've had, you know, I've got certain strategies for like, you know, turning it off and not looking at it and only checking it three times a day. But what about you? Has that been a challenge for you? It's a challenge for me. Yeah. And in fact, it is the probable. It's our primary form of communication these days, it seems like. It is. It is. And, and in fact, um, this is probably my next book. Mm-hmm. It's probably my next book. So I've been doing a lot of thinking and reading and research on this issue. And I, what I really believe what's going on with email in the professional context is that the technology itself is very neutral. It's a set of protocols sure. for yeah. asynchronous messaging. I mean, fine. It's, I'm glad it's, it exists. It's reduced the friction to the amount that has allowed a massive, more volum- voluminous. It's reduced the friction. This is absolutely right. And also what is happening within the knowledge work context is that it provides a, a, a very lightweight, low overhead solution to the issues of how do we manage our organization. Right. And what's happening for in a lot of organizations of a lot of sizes, the primary workflow is we'll give an email address to every individual. Everyone has one inbox and we'll just rock and roll with the messages. Right, exactly. We'll just, we'll just figure it There's out. There's this false feeling of productivity, and I think that's what you mean by shallow work. Like this ton of shallow work. People shallow think, work. oh, I sent an email out, so that's getting something done. Check. But, but it also, it's the primary mode for most organizations to actually coordinate and communicate about right. their work. And so it has the advantage that it's very low overhead in the moment, right? I mean, in other words, you don't have to have a lot of carefully engineered processes or workflows in place. All you have to do is just give someone an email address and just you start sending these messages back and forth, you figure things out in an ad hoc way, mm-hmm. but it's incredibly incompatible with our brains because it fragments our attention. And the only way that this type of workflow works is you have to constantly be a part of it, right? I mean, mm-hmm. if, you, if you step out of the conversation, the whole sort of organization grinds to a halt. So what, I, what I'm increasingly believing is that we're going to see an evolution in knowledge work where we say, that's kind of a lazy way an ineffective way to manage our work. And what we're going to see is much more explicitly engineered workflows Mm -hmm. start to show up in knowledge work. We'll say, well, what are you? You're a computer programmer here at Google? You don't need an email address. No, no. The whole thing is we want you to be able to concentrate hard on the code. So so you have no email address and you'll have a team leader that handles all communication on behalf of your team and they'll Mm -hmm. talk to you once a day. And, you know, we're going to see these custom built engineered uh, uh, workflows. And the reason I think, and not to digress, but I've just been reading about this a lot. The reason I think it's going to happen is we saw the same thing happen in the industrial sector. Mm -hmm. And if you go back and, and read the sort of history of management and the history of the industrial revolution, what you'll find is in the, the first stage of the industrial revolution, these factories were being run sort of surprisingly ineffectively. In fact, most of the work was being done on the putting out or subcontracting system. Where you would just say, okay, here's some raw materials. I'm going to pay you to process them in the wall and just kind of bring it back when you're done. And, and this was sort of the, the system. And the thinking at the time was this is convenient and it would be too complicated. To, if To take more control of this process, to be more specific, would just be too complicated. Like it, it, We just can't handle it. Eventually, we got over it and said, we just have to you know, embrace the suck, right? It's right. We have to exactly. figure out how to do it. And what we got was the assembly line. 
and it was 10 times more productive. But the thing about the assembly line is that it's incredibly inconvenient. I mean, now you have all these hard edges in your workflow, literal hard edges, and, and it's, it was so much easier just to say, okay, team, you go over there and build a car, and team B will go over there and build a car, and, and just kind of go get the parts as you need them and let us know when you're done. That was incredibly convenient. The assembly line is incredibly inconvenient. You have to stand right here, and what if the parts aren't in time, and what if you're going slower than this? But it was massively more effective. Mm-hmm. I think the same thing is going to happen in knowledge work. This sort of email-based workflow is just incredibly convenient. I don't have to think about it, but it's really ineffective. And convenience is the wrong metric to optimize. So I think what's the cognitive assembly line going to be? I think that's going to be the big question. But I think 15 years from now, this notion that most work is communicated and coordinated through an inbox is going to go away. Yeah. We're going to have the, the knowledge work equivalent of the assembly line, by which I mean well thought through workflows that actually maximize the return you get from the main capital investment in knowledge work, which is human brains. And so... We are just in, I think, the early naive phase of knowledge work. Sure. And the- and artificial intelligence is going to play a, a big part of that. You know what I mean? That there is certainly a large part of our daily communication, which, uh, you know, AI will be able to do more effectively, more efficiently, and, you know, with less overhead to free ourselves up, like you said, to do something of higher order. Yeah, I think I'm, it's true. I'm thinking about the SEALs right now. And, you know, when you're a SEAL on a team in a combat zone, I mean, really, the only people who are using email are the key leaders. And then we also use secure chat, you know, which is much more timely. But, you know, the guys who are getting the job done, they're like laser focused on the mission and they're they're planning, you know, the, the only email they might be to like gather information, research, you know, by communicating with an outsider. But it's not the type of email that organization experiences in the staff level. But the, the staff people are addicted to it, just like a corporate staff is. Right. And so yeah. you have this kind of bifurcation of the organization. We have the, the operators, the field operators who are just like really deeply immersed in the mission of naval special warfare, you know, fighting the war on terror at the pointing edge of the spear. And then everyone else in the rear echelon who's emailing back and forth thinking they know what's going on in the you know, out in the front and they don't. Right. Because it's crazy. You know, I was I was shocked to learn. I've done some work with some naval officers, mainly from the surface fleet. But. I didn't realize you're on a destroyer, you're on an aircraft carrier, you have Outlook. Yes. <laughs> and like a lot of the communication is happening. And there isn't any, which also surprised me, there's not a lot of formal, given all the you know uh, investment in optimized routine and systemization in the military, no one's sitting down with these officers and saying, uh, let's talk about workflow. Let's talk about how you handle incoming tasks. Let's talk about, you know, I, I, I'll do some consulting with naval officers and even just basic, task management type philosophies come across as revelations. Absolutely. Like, well, there's, there's thinking here, I mean, because it's, <laughs> as it is now, it's just chaos. It's just a you know, white knuckle it, you know, go for it, give up sleep if you need to, try to keep yeah. it all in your head, you know, uh, have some notebook that you're not quite sure what yeah. you're writing. And, and so. Yeah, and, and, and frankly, managing, you know, running a ship or a SEAL platoon or, or a SEAL team is managing on the edge of chaos. It really is. Always has been, right? And that's one of the reasons why they're so effective because you get, you get very comfortable doing that. But um, we definitely wanted to take time to do the deep work and some of the best leaders in the military and all all around have either do this naturally or they've, they've learned to practice it. And I think your book is is really going to help people not only understand the importance of it, but give some practical tools and uh, tips for understanding, you know, how to make how to do deep work, right, how to structure your lives. So. Um, Wow, you know we've we've been we've been cranking at this for like fifty minutes, so probably should let you go back to writing your next book. 
So deep work is a, it's out, right? It's available at Amazon yep. and Barnes and Noble and all those places. Okay. Yeah. So people can find that. Is there, um, and obviously you don't use social media, so I'm not going to put out any handles or anything like that, but is there anything else, any other place that people can learn about this? Have you written any papers or is there anything else besides the book that people should be exploring? Yeah. Well, if you, if you go to calnewport.com, okay. I blog there. I've been blogging for 10 years. And so you can actually dive into that blog and see sort of years of articles and ideas and case studies about deep work. So, I mean, if, you, if you're intrigued, that's a good starting place. That is a good starting place. Awesome. I super appreciate your time today, Kel. I hope we can do a follow-up someday. And uh, as we were talking about before the call, if you are interested in getting your wet and sandy and gritty, you want to come out and do some seal fit training, then please come as my guest. I think you'd find it enjoyable and you know, it might give you some ideas for uh, for some of your work. Yeah, I love it. I got to do some get some PT in first, so I don't <laughs> you don't want me dying. Depending on, upon which yeah. program you you dive into, you'd, you'd want to do some preparation. All right, thanks again. All right, thank you, Mark. All right, everyone, that's it. So, Cal Newton, that was fascinating, man. I am um, like I'm going to need to recommit to looking at what's sucking up my time. What are my shallows? and uh, continue the process of draining those shells. That's a practice, isn't it, Kel? I mean, it's, it's something oh, yeah. we got to do all the time. I'm going to take another run through the book, uh, Deep Work, and I'm also going to take a look at his other book, which is so good they can't ignore you, because I think for all of us in Seal Fit Unbeal Mind, you know, really finding passion in our work and just mastering it, mastering our game is really important. Yeah. All right. So thanks again, Kel. Um, we'll be watching. Let us know how we can uh, help you and serve you. And folks out there, train hard, stay focused, and do the deep work. Booyah. Coach Divine out. If you're finding inspiration in the Unbeatable Mind podcast, then I bet you're ready to take the next step toward discovering your why and developing your self-mastery. So I encourage you to check out the Unbeatable Mind Online Academy. The Unbeatable Mind Academy is our intensive online training program with step-by-step techniques and training for developing mental focus and clarity, expanding your awareness, developing authentic leadership, increasing your functional fitness, nutrition, and recovery, and all around developing yourself to a higher stage and maximizing your performance as a human being. You're going to get great training and support from myself and other coaches, and you'll be connected to your peers on the same journey in our private Facebook group. So if you're ready to cultivate your warrior spirit and develop your unbeatable mind, find out more at unbeatablemind.com. That's unbeatablemind.com. Yeah. See you in training. Lock it low, boys. Time to explode, boys. Make sure you get home, boys. They got your back, the pride of the fleets, the bright swinging frogmen of the U.T.T. Oh.